Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, December 6, 2022. I'm John Podhoritz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is out today and with us. I'm excited to introduce the chief technology officer of Tablet, the host or co-host of the I've already Ambi- forgotten. <laughs> Ambitious crossover Ambitious attempt. crossover attempt with his co-host uh, available uh, weekly uh, through Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcasts. Noam Bloom, and uh, I must mention that Noam is not only one of the most interesting people in social media and uh, and uh, is a contributor to commentary with his first book review last month, but is also the son of my sister, Ruthie Bloom, whom uh, many of you know. And so, Noam, it's uh, exciting to have you here uh, with us, bearded, you know, like... Yes approaching your fifth decade you make me feel old it's horrible i don't know why you want to do that to me particularly having you on as a get makes me feel just unbelievably old but okay <laughs> hi john it's, it's hi. good to be here finally to finally cash in all of my uh, nepotism chips there you go well you know it's a, <laughs> it's, a, it's a feature of the podcast so anyway uh uh before we get to noam's particular genius on social media which i want to get to and talk about as we talk about what's so wrong about social media, Noam's career is actually an interesting case of the way in which social media can be used for good to advance somebody's interest and in career and do good work uh, and help uh, increase the storehouse of knowledge rather than subtract from it. Nonetheless, I think we should talk about a few other things. Obviously, we're going to have a runoff election tonight in Georgia. The conventional wisdom seems to be that Raphael Warnock, the current senator uh, running against Herschel Walker, the Trump-designated uh, nominee for the uh, Republican Party's uh, position in this obviously totally winnable uh, election, given the fact that uh, Brian Kemp, the sitting governor, won 54% of the vote in the November election, and a, a reasonable generic Republican could have been expected to get about the same, or maybe a little less, but certainly over 50%. And uh uh, Walker's many liabilities as a candidate are, I guess, one sort of go without go without saying. Um, though I sort of enjoy a candidate who goes into a peroration in the middle of a campaign stump speech on the difference between werewolves and vampires. I don't have a problem with that. It's a little antic. I think it's a it shows a little leg. It's not so terrible, but uh, you know, given everything else about Walker. And the way he uh, the way he has approached this, we uh, it's all contextual. You put that in a a very erudite way. It was it was articulate. You kind of grasped the concept you were talking about. You have to actually listen to the three minute peroration that you're talking about to understand how embarrassing it was. But he's the subject matter alone doesn't capture how meandering that digression was. No, I'm you're a you're a fan of the horror movie. What scares you more, a werewolf or a vampire? Wow, I think a werewolf actually, because with a vampire, the the prospect of becoming a vampire has been very sort of uh, uh, has become very sort of sexy in uh, in popular culture. Uh, with a with a werewolf, at best, you have a, an awful disease, and uh, at worst, you just get you know eaten by the werewolf. 
this is that's completely wrong totally wrong <laughs> lycanthropy is sounds vastly uh preferable to exsanguination by an attack I, I i i completely disagree with you Noah. see this is where just think about her how herschel walker could have inaugurated a fascinating dispute and if you add in the zombie you really could have you know, real a real debating society over this. I myself would go with werewolf, which I think is a fantastic metaphor, unlike vampirism, which I don't think is that much of a metaphor, despite the fact that it's used largely as an anti-Semitic metaphor um, by many people. But the werewolf, the idea that there is this monster inside of all of us that almost has to come out on a monthly basis where we get, where we lose, completely lose our cookies and go crazy and then have to deal with the consequences once it's over really does describe something very elemental about human nature yes if herschel walker could have said something like that he would have been a much more impressive figure on the stump okay <laughs> abe you're silent do you have any opinions on this matter i have two opinions uh the first is that i am more frightened of vampires and werewolves because uh, I am partial to canines, so the wolves don't, I mean, I don't want to get, you know, I don't want to find myself uh, uh, crosswise of a wolf in the, in the, in the, in the forest one day, but uh, you know, I, wolves don't scare me entirely and I hate death and vampires are dead. And I, so I'm, I'm af afraid of vampires. Um, the other thought is, but they hypnotize um, you. You don't even know what's happening. All right, go ahead. Well, I hate that too. I don't want that either. Okay. Um, but uh, the other thought is what happened to the popularity of uh, werewolves? Uh, werewolves were a, a much bigger deal decades ago. Um, and they were, they've completely, vampires and of course zombies have completely overtaken them in popular culture. What That's decades? a very good point. There were, <laughs> Wait, two what decades really were they good popular? 40 years ago, there were two really great movies about werewolves, an Wolf. American werewolf in London, which is fantastic. There were and a few. The Howling, oh, the Howling, which is yeah. even better, which is about a community of werewolves written by John Sayles, a fantastic genre picture, one of the best ever made. And then they made the two. Then they made Wolf with Jack. And it's terrible. It was a total botch. But I don't but know Teen why, because they did Michael all this J. Fox. fantastic. Teen Wolf. <laughs> yeah. Wolf? That's Teen Wolf. Teen Wolf. Oh, Teen Wolf. But Teen Wolf yeah. is a comedy, right? Yeah. And Wolf, that's Teen my Wolf frame of reference in the, yeah. in the 80s. Yeah. Wolf. So we there were so many things. 80s werewolf movies. We have now made more hay and a virtue out of Herschel Walker's Vampire versus Werewolf than Herschel Walker <laughs> did or than his enemies did. So I think we should he's now... He's starting a conversation, John. An important yes, conversation. That, that is the important thing. We need... To have a con at Noah's first piece for commentary, I believe. Was it your first or your second? Was about it was my second. We need to have a conversation about race. <laughs> that no, the kind yeah, the, it was the conversation about race that is not a conversation, is a lecture. Right. Yes. But 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 we yes, we need to have a conversation about race. Okay. So we shall move on to just say uh it this is an unexpectedly important election not for democrats who will win who already have control of the senate uh it would be important for them because it would the getting to 51 allows them more control over senate committees senate staff stuff like that if you really care about that which no rational person outside of the senate genuinely does in my view 
it's important because it will it it could be the final referendum on Trump's because the, because Democrats have already gotten control and can pass legislation with 50 votes and the vice president's vote. Getting to 51 means the vice president can go off and giggle inappropriately in foreign climes uh, and therefore not have to sit and preside over the Senate in order to cast votes. But this is the referendum. Walker is the Trump candidate. Walker is the pluperfect Trump candidate. Uh, he had two real candidates that he he forced on the party. And it was Mitch McConnell who said, I'm not even going to fight with you about who's going to be the Republican nominee in Georgia and find somebody who is like more appropriate because I don't want to have a fight. So it's mid-2021. We're giving in. Walker is the candidate. Let's see what happens. Um, and this would make an almost perfect sweep of the Trump candidates losing if Walker loses tonight. Right? I mean, where, where, did, with the exception of J.D. Vance, I think it's fair to say that in Ohio, given the size of J.D. Vance's victory and the relative size of Mike DeWine, the Republican governor's victory, that again, any Republican would have won that race. Uh, Nick Cohen in the Times has some good analysis on this. That there's the the electorate that turned out on in November eighth uh, in Georgia is something like the best case scenario for Republicans, and he's still underperformed. So it's hard to envision how he overperforms his performance on election day. There's really just very little reason for anybody to vote in this race given the stakes. And John, you articulated them. It's it's some sort of academic, um, but there's just not a lot of energy and attention around this thing and if Herschel Walker was just an unpalatable candidate on November 8th he's not gotten any better it was the other day where he was talking about how it's really important because the the dynamic in the house which has no bearing on this race in fact it was kind of unclear whether he was even unclear whether he was clear what chamber he was running for in that comment although I'm pretty sure he is but he uh maladroitly navigated the question he's just an embarrassing person for this office it's just he's unfit and i think voters I, are recognizing that i want to ask a pop a popular culture question of you guys here we are herschel walker was the sort of like legendary star of college football in georgia 40 years ago Four zero, four decades ago around the time that the howling and the american werewolf in london were released Okay, to me, 1982 is very fresh in my memory. It's the year I graduated from college. You know, I, I, I sort of, I, I appreciate Herschel Walker's, like, uh, I don't understand what it was that makes him anything but a bad generic Republican candidate. I mean, how many people? excited about Herschel Walker because he was a football star 40 years ago. It can't be that many people. It doesn't make sense. First of all, a state like Georgia has been a lot of in-migration into Georgia over the last 40 years. So a lot of people not only were too young to know about Herschel Walker and his football stardom, which of course did not really advance into the pros, although he was on, um, he was on, um, on Donald Trump's 
what was it xfl i can't what was the name what was the name of the league that he was in yeah it was the xfl the xfl okay so he was on was the vince new McMahon's. jersey was that trump's what wasn't that vince mcmahon no no there was a league that trump was in i don't remember what it was called but af it wasn't the afl because that was part of the nfl oh but it was that, the usfl the usfl thank you so he was the new jersey you know uh you know sopranos or what that whatever the hell trump's team was um and so walker did play on that or he came from canada to play on that or something like that so trump has this long relationship with walker but i mean if you look at walker like as a kind of un not as a as a person who is known for something that happened a long time ago and then you say well so in that case for a lot of people he is the generic republican candidate he is just the republican on the ballot the whole point about a generic candidate is the generic candidate is supposed to be flat and anodyne and be something that you just project whatever it is you want to project onto them because they don't have a lot of personality or character. They're just running as the Republican or as the Democrat, and therefore they're supposed to they're supposed to do what they do by kind of osmosis or take advantage of the atmosphere or something like that. So in that sense, he is the worst possible candidate because he's a bad generic candidate. He has a little name recognition, but not a huge amount. And everything else is just baggage. Well, I mean, no one's I don't think anyone's jazzed about his football past at this point, but he wouldn't be there without it. If he was a regular guy who thought the way he thought, spoke the way he thought he spoke the way he speaks and did the things that he does. Um, without having any celebrity attached to him, he wouldn't be in the position he's in. Well, there's a corollary to that line of thought, isn't it? Is the the generic Democrat is Katie Hobbs, right? So the generic Democrat now for or the generic she's Republican, the new, she's the incoming governor from didn't Arizona. Debate, didn't talk. Tried very hard to not be anything defined, just an ill-defined figure that had a D after her name. So the generic Republican, according to your line of thought, John has a lot of baggage now, is a Trumpy candidate. The non-generic Republican has to distance themselves from that record, has to establish for themselves some sort of conventionality that renders them not generic. I, I just think is it so he's only the generic Republican candidate because he was Trump's chosen candidate. In that sense, this is a test case of the Trump generic Republican. Right. So he literally is only the candidate because Trump said, I like him. He's my old friend. I want him. He, you know, he has he swore fealty to me. I want him to be in the Senate. And McConnell, again, like at the sort of high watermark of Trump's victimization power, whatever it was in the three or four months after 2021, when they were the beginning of the administration, when they were trying to figure out who Trump was and how to handle him and all of that, said, OK, I'm not having this fight with you. So this is the Trump generic. So uh, so Trump had rules for who he was going to anoint, right? They had to be swore swear loyalty to him. So that's Blake Masters and uh and Walker and Vance. Uh they had to be celebrities. So that's Vance Walker and Dr. Oz. Right? Cuz Vance wrote a huge bestseller, Walker was a football player, Oz is on TV. Uh, Vance wins because he wins in a state that is now as 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 no it was the ultimate swing state is now deep red, and so you know like I say I think anybody would have won in that in that race not not just Vance, which 
uh, Oz lost to a stroke victim, which is not a good look. And Walker is probably going to lose. So this says, not only does it say that like people don't like Trump or voters don't like Trump or Republicans aren't as jazzed about Trump as they were and all that. It says that Trump's own ability to run the party is a disaster, just as a matter of political fact. Right? So are dem- are generic Republicans the weirdos or are generic Republicans the conventional pre-Trump GOP? Well, that's in, a in test the, case, in the voters' it? mind. That's a test case, isn't it? The question is, can the generic Republican move away from being the weirdo? Because yes, in this election, the generic Republican was the weirdo. Well, as as we learned last night from <laughs> the self-help guru that uh, the, one of uh, uh, the challengers to run a Romney McDaniel, her only declared challenger at this stage, uh, she's she's announcing herself. Uh, I'm forgetting her name. Harmeet uh, Dillon. Harmeet Dillon. Thank you. She announced herself or her candidacy on Fox last night. She goes to Twitter and says, the set, first thing I'm going to do is hire this guy. This guy I've never heard of who uh, apparently appeals to the Twitterized base of the Republican Party is saying, this is the guy who's going to get our, our registrations up. He's going to get our early vote yeah. tallies out there. These, this is the guy who knows the mechanics of politics. And he just seems to be a personality, which suggests that the weirdness First of all, will continue. So who is he? So here's who he is. His name is uh, Pressler, something Pressler. Oh, Scott Pressler. Yeah, Scott I have Pressler, never so. heard of this guy. Oh, really? I do this yeah. for a living. He's like a he's like a a young uh, kind of get out the vote type. He, he'll yeah. go and like clean up a neighborhood and and uh, and you know uh, yeah. spread the message. I'm sure he's a lovely yeah. person. No, he started out as gays for Trump. That was that's where he was. A, he's he's gay and he was for Trump, so he's gays for Trump. And now he does this thing, yeah, where he goes somewhere and they pick up the garbage and then he tries to register votes. He looks like Doug Henning or uh, I don't know who, who he looks like. He looks like um, like a Christian uh, rock bassist. Yeah, long, straight hair. Long, uh, straight, straight hair, no beard, like with a kind of sickly grin. All I know about him is that when I went on Twitter to read his Twitter feed, because Noah sent me a link to the Twitter feed, um, he had blocked me back in the day when I was on Twitter. So I must have, he must have said something. And then I must have t- tweeted something insulting back at him. And then he blocked me. So I have no memory of who he is. Well, Dylan uh, had announced her candidacy by going to war with the consultant class. So you need a new consultant class to replace the old consultant class. And this appears to be the new iteration of the consultant class, which we'll go to war with in the next five, seven years. Enjoy your time in the sun. I, um, Harmeet Dillon is, uh, would be, Harmeet Dillon is running as the Trumpier candidate than Ronna McDaniel, who is a person who is so Trumpy herself that she literally changed her name to please Trump since she is a Romney and Trump doesn't like Romney. So, uh, uh, I believe, uh, by the way, interesting, uh, the uh, the the impeachment Republicans uh, who remain in Washington are getting um, uh, are are actually getting openly nasty about Trump. Uh, ben Sass, who's retiring, uh, said, are we going to listen to the clown or are we going to support the Constitution? 
And then uh, Romney said yesterday, uh, MAGA now means rhino because, uh, you know, Republicans support the Constitution. So if Trump says that, you know, it's time to, you know, terminate the Constitution, whatever the wording was, you know, he's now a rhino. He's a Republican in name only because he 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 no longer supports the binding glue of Republicans. That's a pretty good line. I liked it. And I think it's interesting, not that they, that they are now, um, obviously Sass isn't running again and is apparently going to leave to be the chancellor of the university of Florida or something like that. But, uh, you know, they're not, they're not staying high. They're just like, he's a clown. He's a rhino. You know, I, I don't know. I think it's, the gloves are off and I know they don't like him anyway. And he, he took the party away from them and all of that. Um, I think it's interesting. Oh, by the way, the other thing that Harmy Dillon said is we need to take the party back from the consultant class, from the neocons, from the warmongers, the warmongering neocons and the war neomongering war cons, you know, so it's like, who is this exactly supposed to appeal to? How many people, there are 168 committee men who are going to, and women who are going to vote on this. How many of them are consumed and obsessed with the idea that the neocon warmongers are running things? She is actually running to, to be the head of the RNC on basic, implicitly on the idea that we shouldn't be backing the war in Ukraine. Right. Well, where did Do she Republicans announce her candidacy? Tucker Carlson's show. This is the this is the exclusive constituency for this sort of thing. If polls are to be believed, polls are to be believed. Republicans support the war in Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. Now it's it's it, there's attrition because of the drum banging that has been going yeah. on by the the Tucker Carlsons of of the coalition, yeah. mm-hmm. um, and who knows how where that could go if it was picked up by a party leader, for example, if the Republican Party wasn't leaderless as it presently is, and the leader of that party decided to make this his number one issue, I have no doubt Republicans would turn against the war on Ukraine. But they're not there yet. Well, yeah, but also I think the 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 leaders, such as they are, they've, they've got new problems on their hands. You know, I don't think, I think going after the warmongers is now, you know, secondary, tertiary, Concern but I mean, for them. Who who ran against the warmongers? Blake Masters. Yeah. Right. I'm just saying, I, I know this we're talking about a universe of 168 voters. But um who is being appealed to here? Okay, Tucker is being appealed to. Fine. Trump is being appealed to, I suppose. Although I think Trump Trump has not been unsupportive of the war in Ukraine. Am I am I wrong? Has Trump said anything negative about the war in Ukraine? He's he said like all the wrong things. Like he said at at the start, he said what Putin was doing was brilliant, but then he said that doesn't mean I'm supporting it. But it, you got to well, admit, he said it's brilliant. if I were there, if I were still president, yeah, if I were there, it wouldn't would never happen, have right. done it. Yeah, right. Which is implicitly saying that the war is unjust, and therefore I assume resistance to it is acceptable. Right. Granted, he doesn't like Zelensky because even, even though it was a perfect call, by the way, perfect. I don't know. You know, it's a perfect call. Hey, all right. Speaking, uh, speaking saying that Trump. Yeah, I'm sorry. Continue. Just like he, to... In October, he was he was talking about he was talking up the prospect of World War Three and that there needs to be a, a negotiated peace. Because 
we don't really understand what we're dealing with, the power of nuclear. I don't know how much of a hurry this guy is in that he can't say weapons, but he is in a constant rush that he is incapable of saying power, weapons, nuclear, whatever nuclear modifies, he can't bring himself to say the, to say the noun. Republicans have a problem with the word. Remember Bush only said nuclear. I don't, right. And I don't know what George W. Bush, I don't know why he only said nuclear. He's a graduate of you know Yale and Harvard. I don't know why he couldn't say nuclear. It was almost as though he seized the word and then kept mispronouncing it to remain authentic to himself. I don't know. It's an interesting thing. I'm going to, we're going to, I, I want to stop for a second and talk to you about uh, Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast which you've heard me talk about you can get it on apple google play stitcher a couple of things number one dan released the podcast every friday he is now going to release them on mondays and the first monday one came out yesterday and you have got to listen his guest is matt pottinger matthew pottinger who is now at the foundation for defense of democracies but was deputy national security advisor under trump uh responsible for China policy, uh, a fascinating career. He was a journalist in Hong Kong for years. And then when 9-11 happened, he joined the Marine Corps, did tours of duty in, I believe, in Afghanistan and Iraq and became, uh, you know, an expert on, and then became sort of an expert on China and Chinese policy as he had studied it and done as a journalist in the 90s. And um, this podcast is about uh, what is going on in China right now after this crazy November, which began, I mean, uh, the crazy fall, which began with um, uh, Xi Jinping seizing control of every lever of power in the Chinese Communist Party, you know, ousting any possible, not only rival, but historical antecedent uh, and, uh, and sort of uh, becoming essentially a kind of the most dictatorial figure in China since Mao. Then, uh, of course, uh, they try to start loosening on COVID. COVID cases ratchet up. They panic. They they uh, put their feet down again and start, you know, oppressing. And then this fire happens, uh, where people, uh, you know, firemen can't get to put out the fire in a in a COVID apartment building because everything has been locked up and sealed down. And then the protests erupt. And he talks about what these protests mean, how incredibly brave people are to protest, because the surveillance state in China is so advanced that um, they are able, as he says in one anecdote, apparently, if you are a Chinese person with a smartphone and you took a video of the protests of any kind beginning last week, those videos began to disappear from people's phones. So using some form of AI and smart tech, they were able to zero in on people's phones, individual phones, and remove videos from them, giving you a sense of how advanced their technology is in regards to surveillance and the fact that they know where everybody is, they know who everybody is, the phones in their pockets are, are part of the surveillance state's apparatus. And then he talks about TikTok and the fact that TikTok and ByteDance, the company that runs TikTok, is literally run by the head of the Communist Party cell inside ByteDance. Every major corporation has a Communist Party element to it. And the editor-in-chief of ByteDance, the, which runs this 
most used social media service for people under the age of 21 in the United States um, is literally a vassal of the Chinese Communist Party. This is a very important media com company. It's the fastest growing media company in the United States, and it is run by a hostile ideological force, totalitarian force from outside. What are we going to do about this? Listen to the Call Me Back podcast, Dan Sudor's podcast with Matt Pottinger. Uh, it'll scare the bejesus out of you, and it will maybe get you to start thinking uh, in a new way about these matters. Go to Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your fine podcasts, or Call Me Back with Dan Senor. Do you know only one in three Americans believes we can fully exercise our free speech rights? That's why FIRE is stepping up to protect freedom of expression for all Americans, no matter where you're from or what you believe. The Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, or FIRE, knows free speech makes free people. FIRE will always be a principled, nonpartisan, nonprofit defender of your rights, Join the fight for free speech at www.thefire.org. There's news and information constantly coming at us from all sides. With this barrage of information, it's difficult to stay up to speed with everything that's happening in the world. Whom can you trust to explain what's going on from a perspective that values both faith and freedom? That's where Acton Unwind comes in just as there's no other organization that brings you a perspective that values faith, liberty, and free enterprise like the Acton Institute, there's no other podcast that tackles the issues of the day in quite the same way as Acton Unwind. Every Monday, you'll hear from host Eric Cohn and experts from the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty as they take you through the news of the week in a roundtable conversation, breaking down the issues and the stories that matter and demonstrating that the compatibility of faith liberty, and free economic activity in a way that's clear, concise, and entertaining. Whether it's about politics, religion, or culture, you'll get Acton's unique outlook on the world, connecting good intentions with sound economics as we promote a free and virtuous society characterized by individual liberty and sustained by religious principles. To subscribe to Acton Unwind, visit acton.org slash commentary, or just search Acton Unwind on your favorite podcast app. Act and unwind an ongoing conversation on a free and virtuous society. That's acton.org slash commentary to subscribe to the Acton Unwind podcast. Speaking of social media, Noam Bloom. Uh, Noam is on uh is on Twitter uh under the name Neon Taster. First, why don't we why don't you tell people what Neon Taster refers to? Well, it's uh, it's actually from a quote by uh, Charles Bukowski. I uh, I had to write a paper on him in college, and right around that same time, I was looking for a, an online username. This was in two, late two thousand eight, early two thousand nine. That's how long I've been on Twitter, by the way. Uh, and uh, it's a quote that it's a made up term that he wrote, but he was uh, he was responding to uh, people calling him a poet and he was sort of bashing the idea of being a poet. And one of the things that he calls them derog in a derogatory fashion is neon tasters, which I assume means people who enjoy the taste of the neon lights, people who are sort of chasing fame. Right. Uh, and sort of, that was sort of the joke at the time was that I did this in order to get attention. <laughs> and so, <laughs> right. And okay, so, well, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so there, there were. Here's what's interesting about your your career on social media. So you start 14 years ago, let's say. 
you're a kid uh, in school in Boston, or were you yes. still in mm-hmm. Israel? Okay, no, so no, you're no. you're 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 at uh, you're at the Berkeley School of Music. Uh, you're recently emigrated to the United States. You have an American mother and an Israeli father, grew up in Israel, and uh, so you're nobody. You're the, you're 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 nobody, and you start tweeting about anime. Yeah which is a passion of yours and about whatever life. And uh, over the last 14 years, uh, you have gained 160,000 followers. Is yes, that right? Uh-huh, okay. So from nothing, nowhere with no profile. And indeed the fact that you are, who you are from the family you're from and all that was completely unknown to the world until you were bizarrely doxxed by the lunatic, uh, unconventional independent journalist, uh, uh, Michael, Tracy. Michael Tracy. What? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Michael Tracy. Yeah. Um, uh, who is part of this bizarre world of, uh, kind of pro Trump, uh, you know, communists, leftist um, contrarianism. Yeah, leftist contrarian communist psychotics. Uh, I mean that psychotic in a metaphorical and not a literal sense. Uh, so, uh, first off, people first think that you're Ben Shapiro's father, which yes. was one of my favorite ev- moments. On I, and people then went and they tried to adduce the fact that you were Ben Shapiro's father from. Straussian Talmudic readings of your tweets. Yes, and some kind of uh, uh, some kind of rumor that was going on at the time that his father uh, was uh, sort of in his circle using a pseudonym. I can't remember if was, they said he was posting articles on Daily Wire or he was interacting with him on Twitter under a, an assumed name. Yeah. Okay. So you were you went. So you were Ben Shapiro's father. Michael Tracy then then ousts you outs you as using your name which was you wanted to be anonymous <clears throat> right you had wanted to be anonymous you would remain anonymous uh yeah i mean i and i was fine with with staying like that i mean at some point i was hoping to move towards uh, uh being open especially since the the social circles i ran in were all of uh, are all sort of dc media people who are all verified i and and before i was outed officially i had gotten contacted by some people who said look i was able to figure out who you are but i like you i'm just telling you yeah this picture from this party because it i was able yeah. to deduce who it was um and i also had laid the groundwork because the threat of it had existed before it happened for about a year mm-hmm. uh laid the groundwork for it to not be some kind of life damaging uh incident i sat my boss at the time down and and told him that i was on twitter and once i told him my twitter name he said oh i love your tweets so that fear was alleviated but yeah and 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 you know you you knew who i was my family knew who i was i wouldn't i would never be in a position to evade consequences if i had done something extremely untoward right now so the point here is that you generated this following entirely organically back in the early days of Twitter. When we hear about people who have 3 million, 5 million, 10 million followers, 
uh, a lot of that is crap. There are a lot of bots <clears throat> came into being. I remember uh, John Dickerson of CBS, who was one of the early users of uh, Twitter. I think he was a time at the time. Had somehow he was mentioned as a great Twitter feed in like 2009 somewhere. And he suddenly got a million and a half followers out of nowhere. And no one really knew what this was about. It was clearly, it was a lot of fake Twitter follow, And that's what Elon Musk said right earlier this year that he wanted to get to the bottom of how much of the Twitter audience was real and how much of it was fake, how much of the participants on Twitter were real and how much of it were just, they were just sort of mechanized fakes, maybe put there by Twitter in order to, to artificially boost the sense of how big it was. Um, but you did this entirely organically because you tweeted things that people were amused by, interested by, and you had this bifurcated thing because you had a popular culture angle and you had a political social angle. Yes. And uh, it also I also toiled in relative anonymity for years. I only really caught fire uh, right before the 2016 election when a few things I did went viral in a quick succession. At some point, I tried to kind of grab plot the graph. I'm sort of interested in in the analytics of this. I think that might be a contributing factor in, in me uh, making sort of smarter moves towards growth. I used to obsessively track how tweets of mine went viral, what big accounts saw it, and how, who did they share it to, uh, and sort of came up with the with ideas of what was, again, I was never politically calculated so what did you okay so fine so what mm -hmm. did you discover stimulated the audience well a lot of it really has to be uh, uh content that they you, they can't find anywhere for example the fact that i i'm good at photoshop and i can make memes that you don't find anywhere that you don't just share you see on right. facebook and you, you transfer onto twitter and that those were the things that got me a lot i, I think the the trump era really uh mm -hmm. gave rise to a lot of uh a thirst for content that was less uh, sort of outraged and more maybe uh, cynically funny helped to deal with this with kind of gallows humor right. instead of just because you say, you, you know, there's a whole, there's a whole uh, economy of breathless outrage on Twitter. Yes. And there yeah. are a lot of people who just hit that like button over and over when they see something that is generally aligned with how angry they are at that exact right. moment. But yeah, right. there is a demand for slightly more entertaining, slightly more entertaining ways to, to process what's going on. Yeah, well, I always said that in my time on Twitter, which was also where I also got a following that was was organic, um, that what made what different what made me different from other political posters was that I was basically using I was a from a frustrated stand up comedian and I was using it basically to toss off one liners, political <laughs> one liners, which is what when Twitter was 140 characters, it really was very close to being like Henny Youngman level. If you wanted, you know, if you had something funny to say, you had to compress it really, really a lot in order to fit in order to fit the model. Um, and so funny is always good. Funny makes you different. But I want to also now now I want to sort of move into substantive things. The point is that we talk about how bad Twitter is. And I do think Twitter is it can be really, really bad and it's gotten worse and everything is terrible because of it. But in your personal case, you went in part because of your experience and the things you learned on Twitter and all of that, you're you're you you managed to make a, a career for yourself in new media because you had been working at 
the uh, Middle East Media sorry, Research Institute, Media Research Institute mm-hmm. which is a very important organization that has spent uh, 30 years essentially translating Arab Arabic sources uh, and making sure that people understand what is being said in Arabic about Middle East conflict, about America, about Israel and all of that. Uh, yes. Yeah, so I, I actually, I, you know, I came from this world of, uh, of media research and uh, there, and, and uh, I did sort of career transition into new media uh, because again, my reputation on Twitter was of someone who understood it. Well, I got, uh, offers for jobs and for consultancy based just on that. I would, people would contact me and say, hey, I don't know who you are, but we could maybe use you. Um, and, and yeah, part of it, cause I know you, you were going to ask me about <laughs> the, the act of uh, uh, bringing receipts, finding people's old tweets, contrasting right. them with other tweets. And that was a skill that I brought to bear from that world. I used to have to dig around message boards. Uh, I used to track part of my job at the Middle East Media Research Institute was to track the radicalization of the online radicalization, especially of uh, of uh, Muslims in Europe who, because ISIS was running uh, this huge re- sort of recruitment effort online uh, by using things uh, that they used to call uh, jihad chic. They would try to make it seem cool. And uh, there were ways, there were often very clear cut cases where you could track, you could go to somebody's Facebook page and scroll many years down and then slowly see the content shift from extremely regular secular posts about soccer and music to increasingly political and increasingly religious content. Um, And so, yeah, you kind of learn how to look back through people's past (laughs) statements Right. Um, but it, it, it is aided by the fact that I think a lot of people just do not care that their previous statements are online and can be thrown back in their face. And so they don't delete their tweets. They are very uh, unafraid to be extremely hypocritical or very situational about their ethics. Um, and so it isn't always an extremely hard job. Okay, so let's go to the last couple of weeks, because I think that's you have found, you have discovered or uncovered a very interesting echo chamber uh, on, I would say, among the liberal commentariat that that calls to mind the notorious uh, journal list from uh, the late to the decade of the aughts, Mm -hmm. where it turned out that every liberal journalist in Washington was on this uh, list uh, together and that they were sort of, as a result, uh, their work was harmonizing, let us say. Topics were appearing in their work that had first been fleshed out, brought together. And so you saw how the liberal mindset was being created and this actually was disbanded in the wake of its uh, discovery but um the most supple example here was what happened late last week or i don't know when it was when when elon musk uh gave matt taibbi the uh radical journalist uh access to the twitter files as taibbi called them the internal deliberations on hunter biden's laptop and all of that, uh, and Taibbi published this, and then Taibbi, who is, as I say, a radical leftist, like let's let's make this clear, he is not one, he is not a conservative. He is a radical leftist who sort of 
hates liberal institutions more than we hate liberal institutions, just to give you a sense of how radical and anarcho-syndicalist he is. Uh, and suddenly, dozens of Twitter accounts weirdly say exactly the same thing about Matt Taibbi. And what what was that that you discovered? So, uh, I mean, the 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 phrase of choice uh, in that incident, I, there were a couple of different ones that I had found. Uh, but in this instance, it was the idea that he was doing PR for the world's richest man. And interestingly enough, it was it was almost more it was more uh, than just people cribbing because there is no mon. I don't think there is a because because back then there was journalist. Yeah. I don't think this is monocausal. I think there's a lot of different elements that create this kind of soup that results in. Uh, many identical tweets. Uh, if you if you can think back to the James Bennett uh, situation with the Tom Cotton op-ed, that was really a concerted effort for them to tweet the exact same thing. Uh, the New York Times puts employees of color at risk and they would just copy and everybody copy and pasted the exact same thing, maybe in the hopes of getting the phrase itself trending or something of the sort. But the wording in this case, this wasn't people who were doing a performative, we're all going to tweet this as solidarity as employees. It was just random tweets. And yeah, the, the, the use of world's richest man in every single one of them, as opposed to the richest man in the world, the richest person in the world, a billionaire, I don't know. It was that exact phrasing that was very weird. And there is no clear indicator of where this comes from. There were two big accounts in this case that that uh, tweeted this. The rest were kind of smaller. Uh, one of them was uh, Vindman, Alexander Vindman. I think he was the first one. And the other, weirdly, was Abigail Disney. Now, I don't know if somebody, it's some social media company runs Abigail Disney's Twitter account. And I don't know if people uh, have this tendency in like I said, the breathless outrage economy to see some kind of tweet that they think is very uh, cutting and to just tweet it themselves instead of sharing. There is definitely that kind of uh, of uh, drive for attention. There was a, a funny story last week, I think, where the former journalist, and I, I, I use that term lightly, Aaron Rupar, from formerly of CNN and now of his own clipping of clips on uh, online actually discovered uh, that he became recently a brand ambassador of the software that he uses to clip clips on Twitter. Uh, he's now branded that on his, his uh, uh, sort of page, but someone else had taken a clip that he had uh, clipped from uh, OAN, I think, and tweeted it himself. And uh, Aaron got very mad in his replies and <laughs> compared it to stolen valor having taken his video clip instead of sharing it and tweeting it himself. And I don't know if that was brand ambassador outrage or just uh, sort of self-importance outrage. But yeah, there is this desire to be the one who says the thing that gets 100,000 retweets, right. which right. is funny because they accuse Taibbi of running PR for Elon Musk. Yeah. Meanwhile, they have giant platforms that generate a lot of engagement for this, the platform owned by this guy. I just think it's interesting that you say the world's richest man. I thought it was doing PR. In other words, yeah, like yeah. no, take doing PR for phrases. the world's richest man. Yes. Yeah. You take two phrases, which indicate the fact that there are two phrases that are repeated 30 or 40 times. Again, it's not like there was, there was another one meeting. recently that was yeah. correct. That was the first with Alexander Vindman. 
So no, that so yeah. that was the the Vinman one was that the PR for the world's richest man before that. Oh, I thought it was too much power. It's like so no no that was the man. so yeah that was the original one. See that's why I said there were two. I'm trying to scroll mm-hmm. back to find that one. Yeah, uh, but yeah, it was something along the lines of somebody can't have this much power and then yeah yeah he has yeah here we a, go yes and this is again a tweet that's repeated over and over exactly. Oh, are you right? Vinman was here too. Kind of weird that Elon Musk gets to decide how like a half billion people communicate. Way too much power for one erratic individual to wield, don't you think? And yeah, the exact same uh, steal my home. Like paraphrased the exact same. Right. And you, and you look at a, and you look at a subtle turn of phrase, how like a half billion people not how half a billion people mm-hmm. or that ex- that extremely uh, exact wording in tweets again and again I don't I don't know where this comes from exactly uh Elon Musk seemed interested by it because he popped up in both of those incidences to say these are interesting these are bots and then he said a thing that got him a lot of flack he said something about Vinman being a puppet and a puppeteer which was later uh, people attempted to tie it to anti-semitic tropes um yeah okay so so um but this exposure of the internal weird so the way i would read it and uh, this is something abe and i have i think talked about before is comedians are famous for stealing each other's material yeah but it's like one of the weird one of the few places in the world in which that can be done you know because people are they hear somebody tell a joke they go to another they go to a club in newark new jersey and they just use the same material but over time if they get really famous they start getting into real trouble because of it um like amy schumer carlos mencia there are comedians who are sort of famous for and milton burl was the ultimate like just stealing other people's material without you know don't not paying them not doing anything just just absolute lifting them and then they go on tv and stuff and then people are like hey that's my joke like you know you're stealing my material and so when you play this game it turns out this is a obviously like a thing in human nature which is like that's good i should i should use that and then maybe use it five or six times and then you forget that you stole it from somebody that's another weird aspect of a certain type of plagiarism that you know after a while you don't remember that it wasn't your idea um, so that it's like an exposure of a quality of the human character that is very unattractive, but nonetheless there. Yes. And there are people who are kind of famous uh, in the Twitter world for doing that. One is uh, Benny Johnson, who has a who has a, a long standing reputation of just simply taking somebody else's tweet or meme. And well, it's and not just that with Benny Johnson. That didn't just happen on Twitter. By oh, the way. You're right. You're yeah, right. I anyway, forgot about that. Yes. No, yeah, no that's so, correct. Right. Um, and, uh, and there definitely is some kind of there are, you know, uh, Slack channels or uh, Twitter DM groups. I think part of the fear of Twitter DM groups going public, uh, you know, or, or or being in the hands of Elon Musk had less to do with people's private information and more with people knowing that they discussed all of their <laughs> uh, maybe untoward behavior with each other and did stuff like message coordinating, message coordinating. Right. And yeah, I mean, look, there was uh, a few months back, there was uh, Ron Klain had a, a gathering at the White House. He brought a whole bunch of these influencers 
to the White House to give them uh, a nice tour and and pay his respects for what they do. And those people included Aaron Rupar. They included uh, Jeff Tiedrich, everybody that you know from this world. Mueller, she wrote, and all of those people. They took a big uh, group photo in front of the White House. And there Jersey, is what's her name? Jersey? Jojo from Jersey. Jojo the, from yes, Jersey. Brooklyn dad, all of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but I mean, again, people who every single breathless tweet of theirs, Jojo from Jersey, every two months will tweet. I would, you know, I would, I want to live in a country where uh, guns have fewer rights than women, you know, something like that. And every time it'll get 75,000 retweets. Yeah. You know, that's addictive. Yeah, I will say the other thing, because it goes back to your neon taster thing. And I think even my original handle, which I can't remember what it was, um, that sort of like the early 19th century with writers, the form was to have a pseudonym. People didn't use their own names. They were something else, which is often true of early blog like early personal blogging was the same where you yeah you're talking about ala pundit recently who after many years yeah yeah exactly so yeah. ala pundit but i mean he was really i mean he yeah so a lot of people poly pundit inst you know insta pundit though we all knew who insta pundit was but a lot of ace. mommy bloggers a lot of ace ace of spades we still don't know who ace of spades is um and, you know, mommy bloggers who were writing very personal stuff about their marriages or their divorces or their children. And so they were they would keep their their identities sep until until it was possible to monetize it. And then then they wanted to make money off it. Um, but uh, I will say that I just think that there are people who uh, have made very bad use of Twitter. And then there are people who have made very good use of Twitter um and you are an example of how to make a good use of twitter because this this these serial exposures of the development of conventional wisdom or the imposition of conventional wisdom on convention um is very helpful there's nothing wrong with it there's nothing illegal about it there's nothing even immoral about it but it does show you how the sausage is made and that is very useful for people, uh, particularly in a in a in a in a setting in which the idea is that you're getting a kind of cacophony of individual voices, uh, and it turns out that the cacophony isn't quite as cacophonous. That there's a lot more harmony than you might know, and it's worth knowing that that is, you know, that that is developed. Yeah, and it. And it's interesting, especially when it comes from uh, people who uh, act like they're better than that. Um, and uh, and yeah, again, the the idea of st uh, steering away from breathless outrage. I, there's a, a sort of an adage about success on YouTube. If you want to start a new YouTube channel, the conventional wisdom is you need to either do something new or do something that other people are doing better than them. And I get a lot of flack sometimes. Why am I not? more mad about Trump? Why am I not tweeting angrier things about Trump? And the, the, the answer is there are people who do it better than me and there's a plenty of that to go around. If I can say something funny or cynical about it that you don't see anywhere else and you might get a chuckle without downplaying what it was that he did, I think there's more value in that. Great. So that's Neon Taster, at Neon Taster. 
Yes, uh, and also, uh, yeah, ambitious crossover attempt on uh, podcatchers. Also, uh, you can check out, there's another thing we do called All Crossed Out on Call-In, which is a, a fun app that you can either download or access on your uh, PC. You can call in to the show. You can live chat. It's a live show on Wednesdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Hey, can, can I pick Noam's brain for a second here? Oh, yeah. yeah. So, Noam, what should Musk do? What should how to I don't mean I mean, how should he change Twitter for the better uh, in terms wow. of user experience? Well, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of uh, in fact, even before he came along, there was a lot of slow movement towards uh, uh, things that uh, like uh, conflict, in, in introducing friction to prevent conflict, some of it better and some of it worse. If you tweet something really nasty, it'll pop up a, a box and say, are you really sure you want to tweet this? It's kind of it's kind of awful. But uh, things like untagging yourself, uh, uh, muting conversations. Mm -hmm. I've had uh, notifications muted from people who don't follow me. I've noticed that, uh, for example, this is something that I've noticed being obsessed with analytics. Uh, the vast majority of, of stuff that'll make you, that'll ruin your day on Twitter comes from people who don't follow you, who do drive-by hatred, pop in, say the most nasty thing they can and move on. And there is a pretty easy way to filter almost all of that out. Uh, that reduced my Twitter stress by a lot. I think he needs to continue doing stuff like that. He needs to make DMs more private and better navigable. But I, And he they do need to sort out this uh, verification thing. I do think that was the least uh, smart thing that he did was to try to do this on the fly on the production side of the site instead of running small pilots and seeing and, and maybe thinking it out, playing it out in his head to see how it might get abused. But a lot of the initial craziness has somewhat died down. I think uh, advertisers will slowly crawl back once the spotlight moves on. People were uh, uh, eulogizing the place and plugging all of their other <laughs> socials as though the next day nobody will be able to find them. And what where, where is that now? We're essentially kind of back to quote unquote normal. Uh, and I think it'll just get more and more. It'll regress to the mean as time goes by. Well, the mean was always that. The mean was always panic and, uh, you know, a desperate cloying attempts at attention. And it's not like it was any better in, in the old days. We're, we're actually kind of painting the, the, the history of this place with a little bit of rose colored glasses. You got attention by being the, the the craziest person in the room. That's when the food pellet dropped down for you. Right. I mean, the only way to, to, to solve that in a, in a meaningful way is to make Twitter less important. But I don't think the CEO who bought the company outright is going to be interested in doing that. Right. Uh, I do hope that he remains more transparent, more open, because, yeah, he will go on Twitter himself and say, oh, hey, we're deleting a bunch of bots today. If your follower count drops, it's us removing bots. And then that happened to me. And, you know, in the past, it was this opaque process and, and everybody assumes they're being shadow banned and they're being censored. And that, for example, is something that can uh, get mitigated. The, the, the sense that people have that there's nobody to talk to and their accounts are getting banned and their tweets are getting de-emphasized. Uh, de I, I hope that they're more open about stuff like that. I think that'll that could reduce some of the very loud tones about we got to do some, we got to nationalize this. We need to, we need to do something. I, 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 there was a time when Twitter wasn't the garbage pile that it mostly is now. 
Uh, I date the change really to Ferguson, uh, the the sort of explosion outward of what we now come to think of as Black Lives Matter theory. There was this notion that America was now had had become uh, a ritually diseased place and the polarization over over that and a couple of other things before it like um like the uh Trayvon Martin Zimmerman moment and uh a couple of other racially charged things uh but before that there there was a lot of uh fun on Twitter there was something sort of spirited and fun there were sort of these weird moments like the night that Sharknado was on sci-fi and <laughs> all of Twitter watched Sharknado sure. together Charlie, I mean, Charlie Sheen joined Twitter when was the last time you saw one of those hashtags you know remove a word spoil a movie that used yeah. to be like the number yeah. one trending yeah. topic and it was really there were there were fun games and it was all sort of like and 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 uh, just like everything else, it you know the the nature of our polarized politics came in and just poisoned the well. Um, uh, and that wasn't necessarily the way it was going to go. Facebook was also a much more anodyne place before 2015, 2016, where people really did, despite your you no know, discovery of you know of radicalized muslims and stuff like that that there was just a lot of you know here's my you know look here we just got together for thanksgiving you know here's my family and then people oh you're so cute that's so nice you know it was sort of like keeping up with your old friends and stuff yeah. like that now your and friend says where's your masks yeah i'm yeah. unfriending yeah. you yeah. Well, there was a moment in 2012 when there was a, again, a kind of like group meme on Facebook where people said, where gay people said, if you vote for Romney, you're not my friend. And it was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these messages. I know you are no longer my friend. No, by the way, not, not just gay people, Romney. not just gay people, okay. uh, straight people said that, too. OK, know. so like that was a kind of a new that was a that was a new twist in 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 this, this kind of like obey my obey my ideological dictates or I will shun you. You know, that that came out of nowhere almost. But I mean, obviously it didn't. We now understand that it didn't come out of nowhere at all. But it things felt different you can't put the genie back in the bottle i mean there's no there's no going back from where we are now but things were different and this is a symptom not a not a cause i mean that's the problem with social media is people is this question i think if christine were here she would say that it was a cause um i still think that it's more a symptom than a cause although maybe after a decade there is no distinction between the symptom and the cause um that it was a symptom once and now it's its own thing in itself. Um, so, but, uh, but, but Noam, you're there to make it good. You're like a, you're like a, you're like an oasis in a sea of, in a poison sea. You're a, you're a healthy thing in a poison chalice, however you want to put it. So it's great. It was great to have you on here. Uh, Christine will be back tomorrow. So for Abe and Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.